Hello, welcome to Storage Intensity, a podcast that is intense on storage and storage-related technologies. Each week, we sit down face-to-face with storage vendors and influencers to dive deep on subjects that matter to IT professionals. I'm your host, George Crump, Lead Analyst at Storage Switzerland. And joining me on this episode of Storage Intensity is Barbara Murphy. She is VP of Marketing with Weka. Barbara, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Well, you know, we have been, I think, tracking you guys almost since you came out of Stealth. So it's good to get you guys on the podcast. Let's start with the real basics. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. Uh, and then we'll get into some uh, maybe a high-level overview of Weka. So w- what brought you to Weka? Where were you before Weka? Well, uh, actually, it's a great story getting to Weka because it's it brings together the problems of object and how why people are still using file. Um, but I'll pan back a little bit further. Been in storage industry for quite a long time. I started out in a company called Adaptic, if oh. everybody remembers that, yeah. uh, when we went to a billion dollars with SCSI and um, have been in the storage space ever since then. But my foray into distributed file systems came uh, when I was uh, the VP of marketing at Panassas. Uh-huh. And this was in the time range of about 2010. Now it was interesting because parallel file systems were the, you know, I would say the very rare customer that needed this kind of technology. Um, it was definitely very uh, focused on the labs and, and the big guys doing, you know, massive, huge, huge clusters. Um, and very much in its own little world. Um, but I fell in love with the use cases um, because we were dealing with customers that were doing deep research, you know, air and space. It was just amazing. So pan forward, um, I got an opportunity to work with Western Digital mm-hmm. and they had uh, acquired uh, Amplidata and they had mm-hmm. launched the um, um, active scale object storage and they needed a VP of marketing. So I came into Western Digital, it was, um, you know, again, very exciting because they own a lot of the IP so they could do this vertical integration and really build out a very nice platform for doing um, object storage and delivering that in a great way. Right. But then you go talk to customers and they say, hey, I love it. I love the economics. I mean, the economics of object storage cannot be beaten. Right. Right. But I only speak file. Right. Right. So I actually started the process internally of trying to find something to put in front of our object storage so that we could actually address the average enterprise user that needs a lot of deep storage, needs the economics, but needs a file system. Okay. And I had the good fortune to come across WECA.io. Okay. And uh, these guys have come from the uh, the other side, which is they had, um, they had uh, the, the founding team of WECA.io were actually part of the found, uh, founding core team at XIV, okay. which was the storage system bought by IBM and later became Spectrum Accelerate. Right. They said, hey, you know, we've been looking at this parallel file system called Spectrum Scale, um, and we think we can do better because life has moved forward and we're now, you know, 10 years on, uh, Flash is becoming ubiquitous. How about a file system that actually takes Flash as its base instead of disk, because every file system up to now talked talked disk, right. understood you know how to deal with sectors on spinning media, and was optimized for that. So they said, let's start with a clean slate, let's build it on Flash, um, but to get the economics that you need for massive scale, let's integrate object storage and the back end as an integral tier. Okay. So we came together, um, I met with them, and I was originally looking at them as a potentially, you know, um, a partner that we could work with. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then I realized, hey, this is the most exciting technology I've come across in a long time. Looks an awful lot like the, uh, the challenges that we were addressing at Panassas, but now you move forward and you've got 10x the performance and 10x the scale. Right. Um, and I was, uh, I was smitten and yeah. I've been here, I'm almost going on in my four years and it's been a fantastic ride. Well, I gotta tell you, that's probably one of the best backgrounds that I've had so far on the, on the podcast. That was awesome. So, the, so obviously you were drawn uh, to the technology. It solved some problems. What are you seeing uh, from a customer standpoint? What kind of customer is attracted to this kind of solution? So great, great intro. When I talked about the, the, you know, the 2010 era, it was, you know, the national labs, it was oil and gas. Um, there was some aerospace, but it was very, very limited. Right. I am not kidding you today. I literally can walk into any company and I will find an opportunity where they need a high performance file system because during that period, another major transition happened. I talked about flash and that's actually um, that, that, that's been a major game changer in, in the enterprise, but it's done. The other major thing that happened was uh, networks changed. If you remember the days, and I talked about Adaptic and SCSI, there was a preponderance if you want a performance, you always went for fiber channel because fiber channel was always much faster than ethernet. And ethernet was limited you know, by you know, orders of 2x or more. Sure. A major transition happened in 2015 where suddenly a 25 gig network came in and then a 50 gig network came in. And today we're at a 100 gig network. And in fact, at Supercomputing 2019, we actually announced that we now support 200 gigabit HDR. Right. So your network is pipe is huge. Right, sure. You know, God bless Fiber Channel, but I, I think that's, you know, uh, obviously seen better days. And we now know that an Ethernet pipe is big enough or an InfiniBand pipe, they're running you know, um, head to head in the way that Melnox is developing their technologies. Sure. So we have a massive pipe and the network is no longer the bottleneck. Suddenly your NFS protocol starts looking like you're crawling when you're actually on, the, on a super highway. So the protocol becomes the bottleneck. The protocol became the bottleneck. And up until 10 gigabit, the network was always slower than the protocol. So it didn't matter that it was that NFS was, you know, pretty inefficient um, protocol. But once that barrier changed, now you're seeing, uh, you know, 100 gig pipes into uh, uh, any one of your standard servers and you're, you know, bringing data in at 10 gigabit. Uh, there's just a there's just a huge mismatch there. And that's another opportunity that we can fill is that it doesn't matter what your application is we'll give you 10x the performance that you were able to get um, from your shared storage systems, uh, external storage. Gotcha. So I, I want to take the conversation on two paths simultaneously, and I know I can't. So uh, first, let's talk, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing with Flash, because I, I'm, if I'm a listener, I might think, well, I, all file systems support Flash, but you guys support Flash in a different way. So actually, let's go there first. I think I set it up too much. Talk about what you guys are doing specifically with Flash um, that's different. So uh, the way that we're taking Flash is we treat, first of all, uh, we actually have um, written our own um, NVMe layer that talks directly to the media. And so you're so not using the Linux uh, stack? Absolutely basically. not. And yeah. that's the first kind of key piece on how we're getting our performance because we're talking directly to that storage layer. Mm -hmm. And that gives us the ability to be able to control things like how we efficiently use the, the storage itself. 
Then the second piece of that is that um, we take uh, we take each um, drive in the system, and then we clusterize across all the systems. So we're not writing to you know one drive inside one server. We're writing to thousands of drives across hundreds of servers. And so what you get from that is a massively distributed system and a massive amount of parallelization. And, and I think all that's really important because one of the, I guess, attributes of NVMe that I think very few, both file systems and just storage systems in general, really exploit is it's 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 like naturally parallel in, in its design, right? Correct. It's massively parallel. And then you take many of them and you're creating a kind of almost like a hyper freeway of, of parallelism. And... You know, we've had people, for example, that um, are one of the ways that they're using their NVMe, which has become very common, again, partly to a great degree due to the N N or the NFS limitations, is I've got a shared storage and I treat it as a data lake, so, which means it's inherently slow, but I can have all my data in one unified namespace. And now when I want to do my workload, I just copy that data into the local NVMe drives inside my server and I run it local and it's super fast. In fact, it's as fast as I can go. Right. So what we've shown people is if you use Weka, you can actually have three times faster or more than you can get from those local drives because what we do is we parallelize not just inside that four drives inside your server, but you know, we give you tens or fifteen drives that you're reading off at the right. same time. So we've broken the myth that a local file system is the fastest. Um, and we can do that with our parallelism. Um, and again, the fact that we're getting so much of the performance out of the NVMe drive to begin with across those high performance networks um, gives us, you know, performance that's um, unparalleled with, with anything that's out there. And, and is, um, so the, the sort of the next step with NVMe is NVMe over Fabric. Is that a thing for you guys or do you just not need it? So we're already um, NVMe over Fabric-like. Um, okay. I mentioned that we wrote our own um, network stack and we write directly our own NVMe driver. And so what that, uh, what we have done though, um, we think the limitations with um, NVMe over Fabrics, and you see this with RDMA, is the fact that you require Often you require, um, unless it's inside a rack, you've got to have some kind of, um, you know, PFC set on your switch on the network. Now you have to go talk to the networking guys. And they right. said, not on my dime. Right. Right. So you're either limiting your storage to a very, you know, very uh, confined environment. Um, or you have to work at just regular over regular Ethernet. We're able to give you NVMe um, over fabric performance without any need to change any of your network switching. Okay. And that's, we believe, is a major advantage that we have. Sure. And also what's nice about it is um, it, it just takes away one more reason why your customer looks and says, oh, I, I can't go to the network. I, I, they're not, you know. Right. So it takes away that, that um, reason why they can't go to that technology. Um, and we delivered like that straight out the door without any requirements. Well, and I would expect, I would also assume that if some of the uh, type of use cases you deal with, uh, they're they're even a, a, kind of a little further removed from the network guys than like say the traditional storage infrastructure guys. Those guys usually share a cube or something, right? The your use cases, they're sort of even further away from those guys. Yeah, right? a lot of the use cases that we're in um, are probably our number one. In fact, I, it's not probably it is our number one use case is actually machine learning, um, and these really are you know they're the they, there's. 
interesting dynamics about uh, the people doing machine learning. One, they're your most expensive employees because any data scientist who is waiting around trying to get his model run um, is a very expensive and very impatient uh, customer to have. And then the second thing is that, you know, it's very heavy GPU centric or very large HPC clusters as well. So those tend to be environments where they want to build out the entire uh, infrastructure and really dedicate it to, uh, to the applications. But again, you know, it's like I said, machine learning runs across the gambit of um, healthcare. It runs in life sciences. It runs in autonomous vehicle training. It's in security and image recognition. Uh, radiology. I mean, there's so many areas where machine learning is being used now. I mean, it's frankly, it's being used in just, uh, you know, speech to text. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So the when I said what's changed in the industry is that there's an opportunity in every company. There truly is an opportunity in every company out there for um, for using these new technologies to, you know, either be able to deliver better services or be able to uh, deliver more value to your company to begin with. Yeah, we've certainly left the halls of academia, haven't we? Absolutely left the halls of academia. And it was funny because I just came back from a conference in Europe where we had one of our customers uh, presenting on stage. Um, and we actually got a great use case of how machine learning is being used um, in the National Health Service in the UK. So if you have um, things like a digital pathology, it always requires a radiologist uh, peer level review. So in the traditional model, there was always um, a doctor and then another doctor and both radiologists. And today, they've now got approval to allow one of the two to be a machine learning. So you do a machine learning on the actual um, case and you also have the doctor do a peer review. And that way they're able to, you know, reduce by 50% the number of radiologists that have to be involved in that particular case. So, so I thought it was a fantastic way of combining the power of AI with the practical reality that you still need medical oversight. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about that. You, you've not only reduced some of your cost burden, but you've also sped up the time to... Precisely. Right? Yeah. And um, in fact, the other thing is the accuracy of the machine learning models is extremely high as well, obviously. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So um, those so use cases, machine learning, I totally agree with you, just across all industries now. I mean, enterprise, you know, the traditional enterprise Fortune 500 is all that are all over this uh, kind of technology. Is it, uh, but I, I think you also have, even in what we were, I guess, now call traditional HPC, which sounds like a weird thing to say, uh, you guys have a role to play there as well, right? Yes. Um, we're not, as I say, we're not limited to that. I think the reason why we've particularly been successful in that um, is because GPU nodes right. have uh, a huge pipe into them. Mm -hmm. And it really separates the 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 you know the men from the boys as they say right. it really separates out so um, and as an example in fact uh, last two weeks ago at supercomputing uh, 2019 we actually won the number one position on the IO 500 uh, chart as the fastest file system okay. so what that the reason that we're successful there is because we've really shown that when you've spent you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on GPUs that they're not going to be sitting idle waiting for data right but your point about uh, traditional HPC, we have genomics customers. We have customers doing financial analytics uh, with KDB+. In fact, we set a record for um, eight records on um, the Stack uh, Council, um, KDB+, um, Stack 3, uh, last year, or actually earlier this year, 
So again, you know, it's all about um, a more traditional type of applications that like to use a lot of um, high performance computing, um, but also things just um, air and spatial modeling. We have a customer, Trey Altamira in Italy, that actually uses us in the AWS cloud and uh, they are using us to do geospatial modeling for um, when you do oil and gas exploration, it causes the Earth's surface to actually uh, get indentations. And so it's a, it's a safety mechanism for making sure they don't have earthquakes or mine deterioration in the mines. Oh. So there, you, you know, again, it's all the more traditional models, but also, uh, like I say, the new sexy stuff. And, and I did want to make, uh, highlight that point is that we have exactly the same software that we run inside your on-premises. It's exactly the same piece of software that we run in AWS. Um, in fact, we're a competency partner inside of AWS and on their marketplace for almost two years now. Um, and again, you can run HPC in the cloud with Weka. And uh, in fact, the IO500 run we did, we actually ran it in AWS to prove that you can get, you know, you can be the number one file system in the world and be running on AWS and, and get in the cloud as well. So let's talk a little bit about architecture, right? Because, you know, clearly we've already kind of said you can run this on-prem, you can run it in the cloud. What does, so let's let's take the on-prem deployment model, let's call it that. What what does that look like for a customer? I mean, is it it's obviously multiple nodes, things like that. What does that look like? Well, the nice thing about it is we actually have worked uh, really hard. Uh, we're um, a partner with OE, uh, OEM partner with HPE. We have on the Apollo and the DL series, um, also with Supermicro, um, and we're just actually in the process with Dell for the for as well. Um, so we have uh, and Penguin Computing is another one. So we have many different hardware partners. Because again, we are software only, right. and we run on commodity server infrastructure. But you can start with Weka with as little as a Supermicro Big Twin, um, which is a 4U. It's eight nodes in a 4U. Mm -hmm. um, it can be about 100 terabytes usable, and that can be your starting point. Okay. So you don't have to, just because we're a high performance system doesn't mean to say you have to bring in racks and racks of uh, equipment. You literally can start with a 4U. Right. And then you can keep scaling that out and key to the architecture um, is we one of the problems with all of the traditional parallel file systems that were created was uh, they were created about 20 years ago and they looked at what the you know the traditional um, uh, scale out NAS guys were doing and they said okay here's the problem with the NAS you have a, the data and the metadata services all in this head controller right let's separate out the metadata from the data and it was a great improvement at the time because now you could have metadata services going on and then you have a direct path to your data. The problem with that is over time, metadata has become a bigger and bigger piece of the workload. And now you're constantly um, held back because your metadata services are the bottleneck. Right, right. So what we've done at Weka was one of the other things we solved when we looked at the parallel file systems is data and metadata has to be fully distributed. Um, and this is, I would say, the nirvana of parallel file systems. So every node has exactly one nth of the data and one nth of the metadata. And every time you add another node, you're adding metadata services and you're adding data services. Gotcha. And so it's a very simple way to scale that system out. Performance will always scale when you add more nodes. Okay. And we've shown this consistently in benchmark after benchmark. You add more nodes, you add more performance, and you add more capacity. Um, it's a very, very nice system. 
And one of the other things which gets back all the way back to my original, uh, how I found Weka, mm -hmm. we know that in the environments we go into, that you have about 10% of your data is, is actually a working data set. The rest of it is your data lake. So we use object storage internal to the file system and push data to the object storage that's, uh, that's sitting in the data lake. Mm -hmm. So your data is always on the lowest cost tier when it's idle. Um, and then we bring it into the, to the high performance file system, which it runs on flash um, when you're working with that data set. So it gives you that very nice, you know, 90% of your data that's sitting idle doesn't have to pay the cost of Flash, which is the, you know, I hear this constantly, it's the all-Flash data center. Right. The all-Flash data center is great if your data sets are small. Right. But when you're sitting at Petascale, yeah. having it sitting on Flash makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Right. So you have to have a hybrid model. And that's where our architecture is really clever in that it it masks the 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 performance penalties of disk, um, but it gives you the um, economics that you need to be able to, to run at you know a petascale. And, and I think that's a really important point because what we see in these petascale environments is we're not even talking about dozens of petabytes anymore. I mean, in many cases, we're multiple dozens, if not hundreds of petabytes of, of data that these guys are processing through, right? So when, when we talk petascale now, mm -hmm. it's like, it's almost like, oh, that's all, <laughs> but but I know I'm deadly serious. I mean, yeah. you look at how fast data is being collected, and in fact, last week when I was um, I was on uh, on stage with Genomics England, they started last year with 25 petabytes of object storage and 1.2 petabytes of flash for their working data set. This is for um, maintaining a data set for the 100,000 genome project for the National Health Service in the UK. Right. Well less than a year later they're already at 40 petabytes the goal that he showed on stage is to get to 140 petabytes in a single namespace uh, by 2023 and that's their prediction and you have to have a file system that can work at that scale um, because they want one unified namespace now of that capacity what's the percentage of flash versus uh, in, object in, storage? in their case it's it's less than you know five uh, percent because you know two petabytes of raw flash is already a, an amazing amount of flash. Right. So they've calculated so that it handles the the working week, but um, about six weeks of work of working data set. Mm -hmm. But every genome that that's in that data bank has to be preserved for you know, a lifetime. You can't, you can't, you know, this is their, this is their national um, intellectual property for how they're building out, uh, you know, rare disease uh, management. Sure. So it has to be at that scale. Right. Um, but, and you want that to grow significantly because you can't throw it away, but you don't have to have, you know, all of your entire infrastructure. So they, they're able to manage a much smaller ratio than you would typically have in something like a machine learning where it's a 10, Typically, it's 10% ratio. They're more like probably at about 3 to 5% or less. And, and I would assume that that ratio varies from use case to use case, right? I think there's some use cases that that it's either all, all dormant or all active, and there's others that have that sort of percentage. Uh, Correct. Case, right? yeah. And that's why I say what's nice about it is you can figure it out as you go along. And in fact, in their case, they originally were, you know, anticipating they'd have to add more flash and more object. Well, they've had to add, add object a lot faster than flash because their performance is good enough right now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's the nice thing about our architecture again is those two levers, the, the performance tier and the object tier, because they're separate, if you if you just need more capacity, you don't have to buy the performance. Right. You can choose it. If you need more performance, you can just buy that. Gotcha. So it's a very nice way to be able to manage those. So so before we started recording, we were talking about performance-oriented object storage, so that it's stuck in my brain now. But does the performance of the objects object storage tier matter to you guys to be able to feed your feed you stuff quickly so the way we've built the file system is we're parallel file system to the application layer mm -hmm. and it's flash but internally to the object tier we're mm -hmm. also a parallel file system okay so you can almost think of our internal tiering between our flash tier and the object tier as something like equivalent to a luster okay. or a gpfs which is from ibm so it's at that level, so it'll be more of a traditional parallel file system okay. reading off disk. Um, so we're able to do that. It's not like a single threaded. A lot of the object storage um, file services come from something like Fuse, right. and that's very much single threaded, and it's, it's great for if you're just, you know, need to archive and you're, it's very slow. Right. But at the rate that we're pulling data off that object storage, it would never, ever uh, work. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going, because I, I would think that in these kind of data sets, even if, you know, 10% of 100 petabytes is still a lot of data, right? And so right. to pull that all up real quick, you, you need to be fed well so that the fact that that object's uh, storage layer scales out is, is really a benefit to you, right? And, and we also have other things like we, we take large files and we chunk them into 64 meg chunks. Okay. So on the object here, everything is a 64 meg chunk. So if you need a, a file um, and you're working on a part of that file, we don't bring back the entire file. We bring back the chunks of the file that you need. Because you're gotcha. calling them from from and you think they're local and we're just pulling back the pieces you need so that also is some of the tricks we have in being more efficient um, because if you're trying to read you know a, a huge you know 10 gig 100 gig file which by the way is not unheard of in some of these up crazy applications then it can be done right so let's let's talk about the cloud instance because i remember when you guys first came out that my brain kind of went exploded but the how does it work up there? Because I, I mean, obviously, Amazon has you know can simulate, for lack of a better word, all these tiers, right? Or they're not really even simulated. They have these tiers. They have the the high performance compute, you know, medium. Then they have high performance storage. And how do you guys work in that uh, structure? So our infrastructure in the cloud looks identical to our infrastructure on premises, okay. which is there are instances in the cloud that have local NVMe drives, right? Mm -hmm. Very high performance. We take, um, we take a minimum of eight of those instances, we clusterize them, and that becomes the flash tier. And then internally, we can connect directly to S3, um, and it looks just like as if it was an object storage on-prem, but it happens to be the AWS S3. Okay. Absolutely no difference in them. Are you, um, now I think, I think at the last reInvent, um, Amazon, I don't know if they necessarily announced, but at least started talking more about their, I call it their Optane tier, although they've gone out of the way not to call it Optane, but they have sort of a memory, uh, a storage class memory tier now. Are you guys able to support that as well? We're not yet running on storage class memory. Okay. And honestly, um, I believe that that works really well when you're dealing with uh, maybe a single server with a very small data set mm -hmm. that you can fit inside of uh, storage class memory. Yeah. Most of the use cases in high performance computing way scale beyond many, many systems. Sure. And now that becomes, you know, 
that really doesn't work. Yeah, because I think you're certainly under 500 gigabytes for, for one of those uh, type of uh, drives. Correct. That makes sense. And then the other thing as well is that, you know, our founders really believe that the power of parallelism mm -hmm. is far more powerful than the, the cost that you have associated with, uh, like, Optane-based memory or, sure. you know, somebody running um, on, on very high-performance uh, technologies. We can get more performance by by you know uh, aggregating out across more drives than you can from just one drive that happens to be extremely fast, right? Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So the uh, it, it, as you as you go to market, it, it's it, it's kind of interesting to me that you guys, you know, your competition was twenty years old when you were day one, right? So, but you guys have moved very quickly into that. Um, you know, I don't know, that quadrant of leaders, right? When I talk to the other guys, they're all worried about you, basically, right? So that's a good situation to be in. What, um, is it, was it just kind of a perfect storm of, you know, we, we not only, because we've had massive data set requirements, maybe not to this scale, uh, but we, I don't, I think it's the combination of this massive data set, the discovery, if you will, of the value of the NVIDIA GPU plus the need to process that data so fast. And and I think machine learning and, and deep learning, all those different learnings, it, unlike any other workload, the faster you get it done, the more, the better it is, right? There, there's some things where you can get it faster, it really doesn't matter. Here it matters, right? Well, I would say it's a combination of genius and good luck, right? It always is, <laughs> yes. right? Because when I look at the parallel file systems that I talked about before that are about 20 years old, um, amazing technologies, did amazing uh, discoveries in their time, but they fundamentally built the product on the technologies that were available, sure. right? And at the time, the technologies were InfiniBand is the only decent networking you could get. And by the way, it's still amazing networking today. Mellanox has done an amazing job. But uh, disks, right? Uh, there was no way you could ever afford to be doing HPC on Flash. Right. Well, um, and SCSI. And SCSI. SCSI right? And it was all SCSI. Yeah. So things, so it's, you know, I always like to say we got the benefit of standing on the shoulder of giants. Right. Um, the work that was done by DOE in the development of Lustre and the other parallel file systems is amazing. But pan forward, we, you know, we had the good luck that Flash is now coming down in price. And we anticipated that Flash would come down in price. What we didn't anticipate, which has really helped us, is how fast NVMe specifically, because we our first foray with the product was on SATA. We're, I don't have a single customer today that even would talk to me about SATA because it's all NVMe. Right. So we've got the benefit of NVMe, we've got the benefit of 100 gig and 200 gig networking. Um, but the real interesting thing that has made our, uh, that has just, I think, made our point, pain point so great that people want to talk to us, mm -hmm. because Let's be clear, nobody wants to buy from a startup. It's right. much easier to keep buying from the guy you've been buying it forever. Sure. But it's the densification of compute. And what I mean by that is what NVIDIA is doing with one GPU server mm -hmm. would have taken racks of servers inside a classic CPU model. Yep. If you go to the genomic space, uh, there's a, a product owned by Illumina called, it's, it was originally Edico, but it's the Edico Genome. Mm -hmm. um, and that product takes what used to take 40 to 50 CPU servers and on an FPGA-based system is doing the same compute processing. So you've had this massive densification of compute, which means you now need a much bigger pipe to get into that one machine. Yeah. And 
you know, that's where I think we were, you know, timing wise and technology wise, it was just a great intersection. Um, and I think we've kind of, we're getting the benefit of that. The um, NVIDIA just recently announced, what, what did they call it? It's like a smart pod or intelligent pod or something like that, that, that has a, a rack of, uh, it's basically a pre-built GPU farm. The that, Superpod. Yeah, Superpod. That's yes. it. That like, if you buy one, you're immediately in the top twenty-five computer. supercomputers in the world. <laughs> yeah. Ninety-six uh, GPU. Uh, uh, yeah. Sorry, DGX twos. Yeah. Um, yeah, and actually, that's one of the things we've been very involved in, um, actively working and co-developing technologies with Nvidia. For example, at uh, Supercomputing, they announced GPU Direct I was ask Storage GDS. Um, on stage, they had um, they actually presented Weka doing seventy over seventy gigabytes a second into a single uh, DGX two. So let's uh, not all our listeners might be aware of of the technology. Why don't we just talk about that a little bit? Because that's kind of amazing, right? Because in I'll I'll describe the old days, right? Uh, seven months ago, um, stuff would go up to the network. Would go into RAM, CPU would access it, and then feed it to a GPU. Now, how's GPU Direct work? Uh, it pretty much says, forget about all that. Let's just just here's storage, here's GPU. Let's just talk directly to each other. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's basically very direct um, um, from the from the storage node straight into the GPU node, um, and just bypassing that complexity that that uh, became part of the CPU complex. And again. Um, you know, uh, CJ Newburn gave a great presentation at Supercomputing, and I hope it goes live somewhere uh, where he could show, you know, the performance improvements that they got. I think it was 16 gigabytes a second versus 70 gigabytes a second by, by just removing that complex from the data path. And again, that's what it's all about. It's about making the data path efficient. Right. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that was really important was watching just in terms of the CPU utilization or how much better that became uh, with the GPUs. So it was a, it was a great kind of uh, testament to that technology. Um, and, you know, NVIDIA are amazing innovators in finding ways to make sure those GPU nodes are kept as busy as possible. The, the, uh, was there anything that you guys needed to change in your software to take advantage of GPU, GPU Direct or, or was it... It was really more just integration okay. um, with the, I mean, we could, we can show you, you know, performance over, um, you know, over uh, similar types, just going straight into um, and the NVIDIA. I think what the difference in, in that we now see with GPU Direct is the fact that you've got that straight pipe straight in. I mean, I can show, you know, FIO across a link, which is theoretical, but this is really showing data sure. going into the GPU, which I think brings it a level further. Yeah, what's the um, so so you talked about the the performance gain, which was dramatic, right? What 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 is that net to to a customer that's counting on machine learning? What, what, it, my thinking is it always because I always go to artificial intelligence. It, it can make whatever it is act more like a human can because it can it can move faster. But what are some examples of where that that type of dramatic increase makes a difference? So the, the place where it makes a huge difference, let's start with just the training models themselves. Okay. Um, to do an epoch on, on some of the training models around autonomous vehicle driving mm -hmm. can be weeks. Okay. I mean, we're talking insanely you know, complex uh, systems. Sure. And so bringing that down to days or hours, which is what we do, mm -hmm. has the impact of 
meaning that you can now run a lot more models and a lot more accurately and a lot more faster and you can retrain the models a lot faster so it's it's about making the safety of the uh, the overall product much higher and so a lot of the you know a lot of what's holding back uh, autonomous driving you know moving forward faster is the fact that you know it's still a uh, i mean it's it's a very dangerous proposition to hand the wheel over right. to a car and take the human being out of it. Yep. So to I don't know. I've seen some human beings drive. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I would agree with you there too. But 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 what it really comes down to is is the accuracy of the models, making them more accurate because you can you can plow a lot of data in sure. and you can do it very quickly. And ultimately, it's about a race to um, you know be first out to to getting the the, the finished product done. So. I think it's a uh, right now. I think machine learning, the real value in having bigger pipes and being able to crunch data faster, is more about the speed of which you'll be the first to market with your new with your new solution. Yeah, it reminds me kind of of the the analogy I've used a couple times is it because it, it reminds me of my old days as a software developer, which were very short, but. The the time it would take, I mean, so old that I'm talking about punch cards here, but and then the first time I went from punch cards to just being able to compile, and then, you know, a few years after that, basically instant compiling, and, and so you could iterate yeah. so much faster. You could make a change and see how you look, nope, and change it again. It wasn't a punishment where back in the old card days, you just wouldn't make a change, right? And I remember arguing with my professors, I'm like, Flowcharting's dead. Why would I waste my time flowcharting? I'll just implement and see what happens. And they were, you know, they of course were. That was very bad. Um, so let's. Um, so believe it or not, that that went really fast. Um, what? Any parting thoughts? What do you want to leave people with? So, you asked earlier about you know what's driving all the 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 demand and everything. And one of the things that that um, I think is really important to understand is. I know there are probably people listening to this going, you know, I don't have that problem. Right. And I will never have that problem. We have created 90% of the data that exists today in the last two years. And I challenge anybody who doesn't think they have a problem that they will have a problem in two years time because the human brain, we are terrible of thinking exponentially. Sure. And we have exponential growth. I think we're at like something like 50 zettabytes today mm -hmm. and it will be at 175 zettabytes by you know er the early uh, 2020s right right we can't fathom what that looks like right. it's you know it's a f almost a 4x increase yeah. and it will be on us faster than we know and if you're still buying the same thing and and doing things the same way you will it, you'll always be on your heels right so it's the time is ripe for just really starting to look at architecting and in fact Getting back to my, my comment about Genomics England, they had to sit back and architect, how the hell are we going to get to 140 petabytes? Right. And they had the foresight to say, we have to throw out everything we know and start all over and figure out how we can do this and look for architectures that can do it. Um, and that's you know how they came across WECA. But, but the bottom line is, irrespective of which you know space you're in, data is the thing that's going to be uh, the, the key to success, but also, the, the biggest pain point inside your organization because storing data, managing it, keeping it together, being able to, you know, you know, talking to your CIO and saying, well, actually, I'd like to be able to uh, give you that information, but we threw all, away all the data because we couldn't afford to store it anymore. It won't be an acceptable answer. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think one of the things I always advise uh, end users when I'm speaking to them is 
everything starts with a good foundation, right? Infrastructure, if you start with a good foundation, good things are gonna happen to you. Yeah. I'm talking to you about disaster recovery planning. If you've got a really good disaster recovery plan, the disasters tend to not be that bad, right? And so I think one of the things I really like about your solution, you mentioned the super micro box. You can start today, uh, we're not talking about a system that's $10 million, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's a system that's very affordable. Uh, almost every Fortune 1000, I might go that far now, but certainly Fortune 500 type of company has got to have some sort of machine learning AI initiatives, probably at this point, well in flight, you know? And so if you're not there, you've got to be getting on it really fast. And, and I would even contend that, you know, uh, other places where there's huge pain points, and I know about this because I've talked to these customers, is people doing um, software builds, oh, EDA yeah. simulation. I mean, the more simulation you do on a chip, yeah. the better the chance that chip won't fail. Right. Um, and people compromise simulation because of the time it takes to just run the bloody simulation. So if you can imagine being able to cut that by you know, 5x or 10x, it has a huge impact on your ability to be successful. So it's not limited to, uh, like I say, to traditional HPC or, or machine learning, but it's just all the basic stuff that you're doing, whether you're doing financial modeling, or you know your chip design or software builds or all of this good stuff everybody will will benefit from from doing it faster well it seems to me and i and you've helped me just think of this so if i'm wrong it's your fault um but the uh i, I think anything that has a uh, an iterative iterative process to it and and where there's value in iterating more often or more frequently that that either makes you more productive makes you more money makes you more profitable saves lives that's really the opportunity, right? That's absolutely it. I yeah. think you've you've absolutely hit it on on um, on the head. It's the ability to be able to do that and run it and learn from what you've done and rerun it and get better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's end there because I was right, so that's a good thing. Okay, uh, Barbara, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. It was a pleasure. Yeah. I look forward to the next one. Okay, thank great. you. Uh, for more information, you can check out in the show notes. Uh, Stuart Switzerland has done a lot of write-ups uh, on the uh, Weka product. Uh, we've done some webinars together and some videos. We'll put all those links in there. And, of course, uh, Barbara, I'm assuming uh, Weka.io.com is the right, or Weka.io. Weka.io is our website. Yep. Yeah, so that's a good place to start there for all kinds of information uh, directly from the source. Uh, for now, though, I'm George Crump, lead analyst with Stuart Switzerland. Have a great day.